This is a Thinking West Great Books Explored podcast. I'm Christian Poole. Here we dive deep into the most influential books of all time, read short essays and letters from the greatest thinkers, and discuss timeless ideas that continue to shape our culture today. Subscribe and study the great books along with us, and consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com to help keep us reading and sharing this good news of the great books. This episode is on Plato's Crito, where we find Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, at his final test, to abandon his principles by fleeing from death, or hold faithfully to his teachings, to his own demise. As the first rays of sun illuminate the back wall of a tiny cell in Athens, 399 BC, we gaze down at a peacefully sleeping Socrates. No lines of worry mark his face, despite the gut-wrenching trial just a day or two ago that condemned him to death, despite his valiant defense. And in our opinion, it's the only argument he ever lost. Not for lack of reason on the part of Socrates, but rather the lack of reason of the Athenian jury. And whose shoes are we in today? Well, we are in the place of a man named Crito. Crito and Socrates were childhood friends from Alopis, a deme or demos, a suburb of Athens. Now, Crito grew to be a quite wealthy agriculturist in sharp contrast to his friend Socrates' relative poverty. He married, had two children, one named Critobulus, who actually became a follower of Socrates, and the other Archistratus, a general. And most historians don't believe Crito ever really produced any works of his own, and was probably not a philosopher like his friend Socrates, though this is disputed as the writings of a man named Crito do exist, but most doubt it's the same man. Crito is likely Socrates' best friend, as he was present during the trial, during his imprisonment, as we see in this episode, and also later at the execution of Socrates. The two were lifelong friends from childhood until death. And Socrates has been sentenced to death for what? For misleading the youth? For not believing in the gods of the state? All hogwash to anyone who spent any time with Socrates, and Crito would know. No one knows Socrates better than Crito, except perhaps Socrates' own family. And while he enjoys pestering the nobility of Athens, Socrates does it in an honest quest to make his beloved city-state all the better. So as any good friend would, Crito comes to the cell of Socrates early this morning to see what can be done about this death sentence. For it's not uncommon for prisoners of any repute in Athens to suddenly go missing overnight. Socrates awakes to find the familiar face of Crito there waiting for him, and Crito tells him that a ship from Delos has arrived, a very special ship that we'll get to, and that tomorrow will be his last day alive. Now Delos is an important Greek port and small sacred island in the Aegean Sea. It's supposedly the birthplace of the gods Apollo, god of archery, sun, and prophecy, and Artemis, goddess of hunt, moon, and animals and was of interest to the Greeks before Homer and possibly back to the Mycenaeans, the pre-Greek civilization in the region. This small, rocky island was often simply called the Sacred Harbor. And during the Peloponnesian War, this island underwent a very odd time period of purification to supposedly make the island more fit for the worship of the gods. Maybe the Peloponnesian War wasn't going so well, so hey, Let's make the gods happier by making it more worthy. So the Delphic Oracle at the time ordered the entire island to first be purged of all dead bodies. 
Now, I'm not sure whether this meant actually digging up and moving graves off the island or not, but if it did, well, that's not a very pleasant job that I would want. Then it was ordered that no one should be allowed to either die or give birth on the island because of how sacred it was. Quick question, how do you ensure someone doesn't die in a specific place? Maybe the best you can do is ban anyone looking sickly from visiting, but undoubtedly someone is going to die unexpectedly here and there. And just four years after that strange decree, all inhabitants would eventually leave the island. Now in the time of Socrates, there was a ritual performed every year where a ship sailed out to Delos and back to commemorate the successful mission of the legendary man Theseus. This Theseus brings us into the realm of mythology, though the Greeks believed him to be real. Theseus was said to have defeated the Minotaur, half man, half bull, which frees Athens from paying a tribute of fourteen youths to Minos of Crete. Hence Theseus sails back to Athens with the fourteen youths on a ship that still to the time of Plato and Socrates was supposedly preserved through a tedious replacing of shipboards whenever they seemed to be damaged by rot. And this leads us down another little rabbit hole, the so-called Ship of Theseus Paradox, whereby philosophers argue about whether the identity of something is maintained despite its piecemeal replacement. So in its namesake's case, is it really the same ship if every board has been replaced at some time in its history? For more modern examples, is a Model T Ford automobile today the real thing if it has a new engine, new paint, new glass, new tires, and so on? As my initial instinct is to say no, the ship is no longer the same ship if every piece of it has been replaced, but then how does this extend to the biological world? Am I still the same human if every cell in my body has at one time or another died and been replaced with a new cell? I think I'm the same person. Hence the paradox. It's a matter of deciding whether identity is holistically determined or reductionist. In other words, is the whole greater than the mere sum of its parts? tough questions, but good questions. Maybe we don't have to form a rule by which all things obtain their identity. Maybe one rule applies to biological or self-replicating entities like us, and another to inanimate things like the ship of Theseus. I think that would be my initial conclusion on that matter, but feel free to debate. Anyway, this mythical Theseus then swears to Apollo to revisit Delos every year in celebration of his success. And so this ceremonial sailing of the ship to Delos was religiously followed through the time of Socrates. And as further honor to these gods, it was banned to execute during the time which the ship was sailing. Hence why Socrates couldn't be killed until it returned from Athens. Anyway, it's ironic that although Socrates was condemned partly for not believing in the gods, he often answers in very highly religious terms. Here he responds to Crito's news of the ship, saying, quote, Very well, Crito, if such is the will of God, I am willing. End quote. It doesn't sound to me like someone who has wholly abandoned the gods of his time. Socrates then goes on to tell his childhood friend about the vision he had just before he awoke to find Crito. He dreamed of a beautiful woman who said to him, quote, The third day hence to fertile Phythia shalt thou go. End quote. Now this place called Phythia was a city or district in southern Thessaly, a region to the north of Athens. Phythia was also a reference to the Iliad. You know these Greeks love to throw out all references to Homer whenever possible. Phythia was Achilles' home, and so with that context of it as the home of a hero, we might conclude Phythia is something like a figurative heaven to Socrates, 
a final resting place. Hence from this vision, Socrates actually believes he will not die tomorrow, the second day, but rather the third day, according to his vision. As he believes the ship from Delos will be delayed, and so I take it he must have been right. But whether it is tomorrow or the next day really means very little to Crito here, because he hasn't come to just say his farewells. No, he's come to get Socrates out of this execution by whatever means necessary, so long as it agrees with Socrates. Any friend would do the same, you would hope. And so Crito begins with very understandable and honest points, saying, quote, Now, can there be any worse disgrace than this, that I should be thought to value money more than the life of a friend? End quote. He says this because he fears being blamed for not doing everything in his power to get Socrates free. Remember, Crito is a very wealthy and respected businessman, and even today we tend to think of those with money as having strings that can be pulled to get certain things done. And I don't deny that that's obviously true. So if we were the poor friends of Socrates, would we not look to Crito for the rescue mission too? Crito knows and makes it known to Socrates that money will solve this issue. We can pay off these guards, and you can be out tonight. You can save your life, and I can save my reputation. It's a win-win for both of us. But Socrates instead responds to Crito's appeal to public opinion, saying, quote, But why, my dear Crito, should we care about the opinion of the many? End quote. Man, isn't this relevant to us today? How often do we care what most people will think of our actions, or the things we post on social media, for example? Thank goodness I'm done with the latter. How often do we alter our actions to please the faceless and nameless people around us, despite us preferring to do otherwise? Now, to be reasonable, there are such things as manners and civil behavior that are good in themselves. There's a balancing act between frankness and manners. We don't lie to appear kind, but we also don't say what may be true without any consideration of kindness. We can tell someone their shirt looks terrible if they ask, but don't need to tell them it's terrible without solicitation of our opinions. Crito is worried he will be blamed for not helping Socrates, that the masses will not know the more complicated truth of their meeting here today. Socrates consoles them, reminding that the good men, those that matter, will know the truth and think likewise. So, too, we shouldn't overworry ourselves with the opinions of everyone, but rather those of the choice few around us. Nonetheless, Crito presents a multifaceted argument for why Socrates should escape which Socrates is very open to listening to, being open to debate on all things. This friend has come prepared with an arsenal of reasons to get the father of philosophy a get-out-of-jail-alive-but-not-free card. His three main arguments are these. 1. Socrates' death might harm the reputation of his friends, who will be blamed for not helping him, though they are more than willing to help. 2. Socrates, though exiled from Athens, will be welcomed and loved elsewhere, such as in Thessaly, where Crito has many friends. And lastly, Socrates still has a duty to raise and teach his children, and not to abandon his family if he can help it. You know, if I were in Socrates' shoes, I honestly think this last argument would convince me. It's likely that most fathers and mothers today would agree that duty to our family in terms of physical needs and presence trumps the misguided conviction from the court. Though, many fathers and some others do, in a way, make such a decision most notably those who go off to fight wars or conflicts and risk not coming back to their families. I would argue they must hold something higher than their personal duty to immediate family, maybe country or some higher calling, or for some it's simply the way, the means by which they care for their family, monetarily speaking. And it's not just military that operates this way. 
Any job that requires a lot of travel, be it merely business or something else, also calls the worker away from his or her family, though not permanently and likely with a very small risk of not coming back. Socrates will address each of Crito's argument one by one. Now on the first we've already touched on it, as it regards the opinions of the many, the masses, the people near us and even those far away. It's apparent from Plato's telling of this story that Socrates and Crito, and probably other students of his as well, have already talked about this problem before. Whose opinions should we care about? It's something all of us should explicitly think and talk about, even though most of us surely don't. I know I haven't up until this point. Well, they had already concluded before that some people's opinions should be regarded well, and others ignored. Socrates wants to know if this still applies now or not, chiefly because he fears that he might fall into hypocrisy. As he tells Crito, quote, And has the argument which was once good now proved to be talked for the sake of talking, mere childish nonsense? End quote. And in Socrates' argument, he lays out the question more precisely this way. Quote, in questions of just and unjust, fair and foul, good and evil, which are the subjects of our present consultation, ought we to follow the opinion of the many and to fear them, or the opinion of the one man who has understanding? End quote. So he's pitted the opinion of the many versus an opinion of a single person who has understanding. Do we listen to the popular opinion or the man whom we respect for his knowledge or wisdom of the object in question? Now, I immediately thought to distill this question into popular opinion versus the opinions of an expert, but I don't like the word expert because, at least to me, an expert is someone who is competent in a scientific field or manner. And the expert label doesn't seem an accurate description for those knowledgeable on non-scientific things. I don't call a wise man an expert in wisdom, though perhaps some might, maybe it's just semantics, but I think the term expert implies a scientific approach. The other problem I have with expert as a label is that it often doesn't really matter the person's real knowledge of a field and seems to be more linked with face value credentials than correct analysis or assessment of a problem. For example, someone who has researched a subject for years but never attained a degree associated with it is often barred from being labeled a so-called expert, and that while those with an advanced degree in a subject often are experts in those fields, Someone with the exact same knowledge and skill, but without the degree, will often not be regarded as an expert. But I digress. Returning to our cell where sit Socrates and Crito, Socrates concludes the first point affirming that we should listen first to those who have understanding. He says to Crito, quote, Then, my friend, we must not regard what the many say of us, but what he, the one man who has understanding of just and unjust, will say, and what the truth will say. End quote. Now, at this point in the book, I had a disturbing thought, which I hope many of you have shared, especially in the super-political times we're in, where if one were to watch the news from various sources, one would not get a coherent picture of the world. Rather, one would find completely contradictory narratives written into official-looking news. And then you wonder, these two views of the world can't coexist forever. One must win over the other. The history books will be written by one side. What if the side of the story that agrees with our observations of the world isn't written? It's scratched out, discarded, only to be remembered many years later by those few who remember firsthand what happened. And even some of those who did see it firsthand as we did, 
might begin to question the reality of what they saw based on the near-perfect erasure of that view in the future. It would be banned from any site, any website that is, laughed at in public discourse, ripped from every official history book, and worst of all, called the C-word. A conspiracy. In what historical and political events do we now wonder if the truth will be known to the masses of future generations? What if the truth is simply regarded later as a past conspiracy theory, and you are the lone nut job that thinks contrary to the recorded historical narrative? Reminder, conspiracy is not de facto false. Many conspiracies are provably real. Socrates may have been victim to a political conspiracy wanting to rid Athens of a pesky instigator in our case. Not proven, but possible. But the historically factual conspiracy was Caesar's death. It is the exemplary conspiracy. We can apply this criticism of how true things might be forgotten while false ideas persist to the past as well. What things do we regard as true historically now that may be false? History is written by the victors, after all. Who knows what historical truths we hold now that might have been quite different than as recorded? Even in the story of Crito and Socrates, remember we are never getting a very objective view of Socrates. It's from Plato, his student, who may have more interest in preserving the reputation of his teacher than of recording history accurately. Humans are not hive creatures like bees or ants. Socrates knows this well, as he mistrusts the larger collective of peoples. We rarely act with singular focus, as it turns out when you put the biggest brains on the planet, in comparison to all other animals together in one room, reason often gets trampled on by emotion, and mob rule wins. Socrates says the multitude would, quote, be as ready to restore people to life, if they were able, as they are to put them to death, and with as little reason. End quote. Interesting example from Socrates, because at first thought, who wouldn't want to revive a great many of those who have died? Why wouldn't we bring back to life Grandma and all our other beloved dead, both small and great? I don't pretend to know the answer to that outside of a purely religious argument, but it sounds like opening Pandora's box. Hence is an idea that, if the capability were available should be given a great deal of thought before digging up some skeletons. Anyway, clearly Socrates thinks of crowds as overall unreasonable entities. I can't disagree. Football games, concerts, protests all have a tendency to ride more on emotion and get out of hand than achieve constructive unified goals. The Tower of Babel comes to mind, which could be explained in two ways. Yes, maybe God did impart to those ambitious builders unique languages to deter them from their idolatrous ways. Or maybe the project simply became too big with too many different thinking and different speaking peoples. We can't trust the crowds, the masses, the larger populace to know what is true. What's true and reasonable isn't a matter of democracy. Ah, here's an interesting thought. If you followed our past episode on Plato's Apology, you explored the idea that Socrates actually might not have been so fond of democracy in the first place, and maybe that sentiment is what got him in this situation as democracy restored in Athens. Well, now here we see Socrates' opinions of the masses, and a pure democracy like that of Athens is effectively controlled by who? The masses. So our little political conspiratorial theory of Socrates' distaste for democracy finds even better legs through this careful reading of the work of Crito today.
Now, in addressing any problem, Socrates often goes back to what is most important to him, justice. He follows whatever he believes to be just and right, no matter the consequences. That's the theme of this work, Crito. So he explores the nature of its opposite, injustice, saying, quote, Injustice is always an evil and dishonor to him who acts unjustly. And what of doing evil in return for evil, which is the morality of the many? Is that just or not? End quote. Sounds like Socrates is a pacifist. But hold on. Socrates is saying to injure no one, even if they injure you. But he's talking about a very personal injury, say, that of a fellow citizen through slander. He's not applying this to situations of war, for the obvious reason that Socrates served in battle. It's much like the turn-the-other-cheek passage in the Bible. We do not return evil for evil in a personal way. However, there is such a thing as a just war and justice and self-defense. At this point, Socrates begins assessing whether he should escape or not by figuring out if this does any injustice. He proceeds in a very strange way, pretending to speak as if the laws of Athens were a person, a person that he could offend. So Socrates talks through the laws, saying, quote, Tell us, Socrates, what are you about? Are you not going by an act of yours to overturn us, the laws, and the whole state, as far as in you lies? Do you imagine that a state can subsist and not be overthrown, in which the decisions of law have no power, but are set aside and trampled upon by individuals? End quote. What's he saying here? In a nutshell, his argument is that laws without enforcement is lawlessness. If the law allows someone to break the law without consequence, there is no law. And to Socrates, to destroy the laws through his subversion of the consequences would destroy the laws and injure the state. Socrates, wanting to live justly and thereby to live well, can't injure the state and must hence face the consequences the laws have given him. Socrates gives an example, perhaps drawing on his military experience, by comparing the citizen's relationship to the state and its laws like the relationship between soldier and commander. Rather than commit violence or injury to the state by subverting its punishment and hence its laws, Socrates prefers only to attempt to persuade the state regarding what is just. This is, after all, a necessary philosophy for peace. Otherwise, anarchy ensues. Socrates, still in the voice of the laws, says to his hypothetical self, quote, In the first place did we not bring you into existence. Your father married your mother by our aid and begat you. Say whether you have any objection to urge against those of us who regulate marriage. End quote. And it's at this point that I find Socrates with a very different view of law and government than my own. In Socrates' world, man owes something to the law, and hence to the government that upholds such law. He even goes so far as to say that one's simple existence is in debt to the law, because the law regulates marriage, by which children are, in the norm of history, born from. This is completely upside down to how I, and I think most of us, will view man's relationship to the state, especially in the United States where the new government was formed by the people to serve the people. But Socrates goes on asking himself if he would do injustice, quote, against those of us who after birth regulate the nurture and education of children, in which you were also trained, end quote. Now look, I try not to interject all my own opinions on everything our characters say and believe, but it all just rings backwards here. The institutions, according to Socrates, of education enabled by the laws of the government are the source of raising and educating the children of his time. 
and this isn't as crazy to our ears today. However, with the advent of state-sponsored education, i.e. public school, which took over the U.S. in the early 1900s. Our government does take control, and hence, I suppose, the credit of educating many of our youth today. But for most of history, public education wasn't the norm. Most were educated through some sort of homeschooling, tutoring, or apprenticeship instead. Socrates concludes in the voice of the laws, quote, Well then, since you were brought into this world and nurtured and educated by us, can you deny in the first place that you are our child and slave, as your fathers were before you? End quote. Child and slave? Sounds crazy, right? Who today thinks of citizens as children or slaves of the state, or the laws of the state more precisely? This is where most of us will drastically depart from Socrates' thinking, I, I hope. In this world, a citizen is a product of the state and hence derives its right from the state, rather than having divine rights or rights inherent in the very fact that we are human, as Christianity and its ideas produced. He continues in the voice of the laws to himself, quote, Will you, O professor of true virtue, pretend that you are justified in this? Has a philosopher like you failed to discover that our country is more to be valued and higher and holier than mother or father or any ancestor, and more to be regarded in the eyes of the gods and of men of understanding? End quote. This firmly establishes a hierarchy where the state and its laws are above family and individual to Socrates. And while we might think, well, no person is above the law in our modern societies, we still recognize that laws serve mankind. They are agreements we form with each other for collective and individual safety and convenience. To Socrates, these laws are more than simply legal. They are the very ideas of what is right and wrong. And that's the key to understand in Socrates' thinking here. I think the major distinction is that we can often draw lines between merely legal and moral laws derived from nature and religion, whereas to Socrates, they all appear the same. Then Socrates turns to the question of whether fleeing is just. Should he flee in exile rather than face the death penalty here in Athens? To Socrates, fleeing would be thrice wrong. One, he would be disobeying both the state and his parents who taught him to obey the state. Two, because the state educated him, leaving him with a debt to the state. And three, because he has an implicit agreement to obey the state and their laws. On the last point, Socrates says that by him leaving freely in Athens, he was implicitly agreeing to all of the laws of Athens because he could have left at any time prior to his trial if he found the laws disagreeable to him. However, Socrates loved Athens so much as to barely ever travel from it, going only to Isthmus for the games and other travels for his military service. Hence, he claims he knows this implicit contract with Athens better than any other. He will choose to die in his beloved city rather than in some foreign place. Then Socrates ends his argument, summarizing his perspective, saying if he runs, his friends will be harmed by punishment from the state. Furthermore, his kids will lose their Athenian citizenship, and he, Socrates, will forever be remembered as a usurper of the laws. Socrates says, quote, Think not of life and children first, and of justice afterwards but of justice first, that you may be justified before the princes of the world below. End quote. Crito has no counter-argument, and really offers very little resistance to the arguments of Socrates. 
he acquiesces to all that Socrates has said here. Socrates ends his voice through the laws, saying, quote, Now you depart in innocence, a sufferer, and not a doer of evil, a victim not of the laws but of men. End quote. He says the laws haven't failed him, but his fellow Athenians have. To him, men either implement perfect laws well or not well, with no fault ever for the laws, because this law is above man. And so we have it that our protagonist Socrates chooses death over fleeing to life elsewhere, all because of an idea, that of justice, what is right and good for a person and society concurrently. That brings us to the question of what would we die for? It's not terribly difficult to come up with a short list of those things that are commonly paid for by the ultimate sacrifice. Family is probably at the top of that list for most, followed by perhaps your closest friends. Freedoms are high on the list throughout history. Land has been something to die for for quite some time. And at first we might think it petty. But for many people, your land was your livelihood and hence your life. If you lost your land with its animals and crops, you and your whole family could die of starvation. Then some might die to stop absolute evils like the Holocaust. But how many of us would die purely for an idea? An idea with no physical or immediate bearing on reality, just the abstraction, or at most its larger ramifications if we can perceive them. Socrates did. He decided it was better to die solely in adherence to what he thought was just. Would we die for truth, principles, honor? Should we die for those things? Of course, religion is in that mix as well, though it's hard to classify it as either a physical thing or an idea. In my opinion, it tends to cross those lines. Socrates ends our story here by looking at his longtime friend Crito, and bids him farewell until the day of his death, saying, quote, Leave me then, Crito, to fulfill the will of God, and to follow whither he leads. Thanks for tuning in to the Great Books Explored podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to revive the great books and the great conversation in this crazy digital age, please consider supporting us at thinkingwest.com donate. And look, we complain about our culture going down the tube every day because of its ignorance of better things to think and talk about than what's the latest sports or reality TV development. We're tired of a culture praising stupid entertainment over content that can get us to think again to desire something greater for ourselves. In my own small way, I hope to make a dent in this monolithic six-second attention span of the culture by pointing to something better, the great books. Help me to do that very thing by sharing this podcast everywhere and to everyone you can. Rate it, subscribe, and leave a comment on what you're thinking about these works, about the discussion here of Crito and Socrates, whether Socrates chose rightly or not. Most importantly of all, Read on.